This is the first of two lectures on peer influence on adolescent development. Uh, first, let's consider what we mean by the term peers. Peers are people who are roughly the same age as we are that we have frequent contact with. So my peers cover an age range that we could call late middle age. I'm not sure when I'll start considering myself old, but not yet. <clears throat> Typically for children and adolescents, those who would be considered peers are those in relatively narrow age ranges. But that is a result of the way our particular society is structured at this point in time, where we have a lot of age segregation in school, in after-school sports activities, in other times, in other places. The people who might be considered a child or an adolescent peers spanned a broader age range. We'll be discussing peer influence and parental influence. And I'd like you to consider parental influence broadly. In the traditional or so-called traditional nuclear family um, with co-resident mother and father, um, parental influence would refer to the influence of mother and father. But <clears throat> we have many different family configurations today, and extended family members and family friends may serve in a parental role. One of the things we'll be discussing is how psychologists study peer influence. By and large, for adolescents, for school-age children, and for adults. Peer influence is studied through sociometric techniques. <coughs> In um, sociometric techniques, researchers ask individuals to nominate within some defined group those people that they interact with most frequently, that they prefer to interact with, that they least prefer to interact with, those individuals whom they perceive to be most popular. And in any given study, the particular ratings that a researcher uses may vary. But the, the basic idea is to use rating data rather than observational data, rather than experimental data. These rating data may then be correlated with other measures, such as parental reports of the children's adjustment, teachers' reports about children's behavior, grades, history of involvement with the criminal justice system, um, any variable um, limited only by the researcher's imagination, the availability 
of cooperative subjects and, of course, the approval of the IRB. We'll be discussing the ways that peers and peer influence, um, peer status within groups affects the individual development of adolescents in the short term and in the long term. To return to your list of things you were interested in, in this lecture we will touch on um, deviant behavior, substance abuse, um, some aspects of abnormal adjustment, the impact of socioeconomic status, um, obviously peer influence, uh, some discussion of parenting styles, uh, the influence of peer pressure on substance abuse and delinquent behavior. And some important terms, some of which you have heard in other lectures in this course, some of which I hope you've encountered in other coursework, but I want to review these because I'm going to be using them without definition later. And we'll discuss the impact of attachment. Attachment is the relationship that develops between a child typically starting in infancy and the child's primary caretakers. And we characterize attachment relationships in terms of whether they are secure or insecure. And if they are insecure relationships, are they insecure, ambivalent, in which case the child has learned that the parents are not reliable, that caretakers may sometimes be responsive and sometimes unresponsive. In the case of avoidant attachment, the infant and child has learned that the parent is not terribly interested in them. And so typically the child is very emotionally distant from the parent. Related to or intrinsic to attachment theory is the notion of the internal working model. The internal working model is a psychological representation that develops as a result of the relationship between the infant and young child and the primary caretakers that contains a representation of the self as lovable or unlovable and representations of relationships with other people as sources of psychological support and nurturance or as unpredictable um, sources, sometimes of criticism, sometimes of neglect, sometimes of nurturance, or perhaps as voids, relationships out of which the child can expect nothing. <clears throat> and other terms that we'll use are social identity and reference group. Our social identity refers to those aspects 
of identity that are derived from the groups that we say uh, I'm part of them, um, whether that is uh, I'm an honor student, I'm a member of a fraternity, I'm a member of a religious group, I'm a member of a particular club, um, I'm Italian, I'm Irish, I'm any term in which we invest some positive emotion, in which we derive some positive sense of who we are because we identify with that group um, would be part of our social identity. Um, and these groups are known as reference groups. We typically derive some of our positive feelings about ourselves from the reference groups that we identify with that form part of our social identity. If I am an honor student who actually only has a B average, um, I still derive some positive sense of identity from saying I'm an honor student in the honors program. Our reference groups distinguish us from other people and we bask in the glow of the positive attributes of our reference groups. Um, unfortunately, there can be a dark side to reference groups. Not always, but often we contrast our reference group with other reference groups and just as we elevate the positive attributes of our reference groups that may form the core of our social identity, we may denigrate, disparage, speak and think negatively about the attributes of contrasting groups. And another term that I'll use is social isolation. A person who would be described as a social isolate is not a person who lives in a box and never speaks to anyone else, but it's a person who doesn't have reciprocated friendly relationships with someone outside the family. So a child may say, um, Bobby is my best friend, but if Bobby doesn't consider that child a friend, the fact that they are acquaintances um, but not reciprocal friends um, leaves the child as a social isolate. So social isolation refers not to absolute physical isolation from other people, but to the lack of reciprocated friendly relationships. And two other terms we'll use are behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy. And we've discussed these earlier in the context of adolescent development. Behavioral autonomy refers to the individual's growing ability to make 
adaptive choices without consulting parents. So some behavioral autonomy develops and some is granted by parents who recognize the growing capacity of their children and give them opportunities for exercising choice. And typically, behavioral autonomy develops in the most healthy directions if parents have been giving children choices from fairly early in their lives. Emotional autonomy refers to the individual's ability to feel good about themselves, to rationally and realistically emotionally evaluate their behavior without constant checking with others for reassurance. Um, none of us, of course, is completely emotionally autonomous. But as we grow, we typically internalize uh, a value structure, uh, a pattern of emotional responsiveness so that we can be relatively sure about how we feel about different things that we do, different things that we experience. Um, so both behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy are good things to have. Um, and they're things that are influenced, um, at least in early and middle adolescence, um, by peer influence. We um, may cede some behavioral autonomy. We may cede some emotional autonomy to our peers and find out what they want to do and follow what they want to do rather than follow our internal compass. Okay, peer influence is typically very, very important. It can be a significant contribution to an individual's emotional security, to their social skills, to their cognitive development, to their mental health, to their physical health. Psychologists ranging from Piaget and Vygotsky to Bandura, um, Harry Stack Sullivan, have all emphasized the importance of peer relationships. Peer relationships are, in essence, a school in which we learn important skills. So a question that has recurred is whether peers are more important than parents. And as with many either-or questions in psychology, some theorists have staked out fairly extreme positions. Um, there was a point in time, not too many years ago, when some psychologists said parents really have minimal influence on their children, particularly their adolescence, and peers are the dominant influence in the choices that adolescents make behaviorally, academically, socially. That's overstating the case. Um, it's, it's very, very clear 
that the early relationships formed in the family, the attachment relationships, the model of the self, the model of relationship that is formed in infancy and early childhood is the basis for peer relationships. So the individual who has developed an emotionally secure attachment with parents, who knows that he or she can depend on parents for love, can depend on parents for emotional security, is freer to explore the world, freer to explore new ideas, freer to explore social relationships and because they expect positive things from relationships and have acquired reasonable self-regulatory skills, they have better peer relationships. Separate from the influence of family, there's considerable evidence that friendships are a positive factor in development, so that having friendships in childhood and middle adolescence is predictive of positive developmental outcomes, but also that having a reciprocated friendship can be a protective factor for a child who experiences a number of risk factors, whether those are risk factors in the family, risk factors in the neighborhood, risk factors in the school. For example, in general, children who are victimized by peers a year after the victimization begins are in worse mental health than they were when the victimization started. But there's a significant exception to that, and that is victimized children who have a reciprocated best friend are protected from that deterioration in mental health that comes from being bullied and victimized. Um, and quite typically, the victimization will have been reduced or eliminated for the child who has a reciprocated best friend. Um, additionally, we know that social isolation at any point in life carries significant risks. Um, the socially isolated child is likely to become the socially isolated adolescent, likely to become the socially isolated adult. Um, it is not inevitable, but the association is at least moderately strong. Socially isolated people are at greater risk for internalizing problems such as significant depression, significant anxiety. Um, for women, they are at greater risk for alcohol abuse. Um, people who are socially isolated are more likely to have difficulty adapting to adult working roles. We learn how to get along with people in peer relationships 
And that learning simply doesn't take place as effectively for individuals who are socially isolated. Uh, we also know that in adulthood, individuals who don't belong to some cohesive community, and faith communities um, are among the communities that have been most studied, are at much greater risk for health problems, including serious obesity, um, diabetes, coronary heart disease, stroke, cancer, across the panoply of disorders that can afflict us, people who are socially isolated are at greater risk. So why are peers important to adolescents? Um, first and foremost is learning life skills learning skills that are going to be important for adult adjustment in intimate relationships, in working relationships. In peer relationships, we learn how to plan together, how to divide tasks, work together. We learn that we can't always have our way and that we have to compromise gracefully if we want to get along with others. Um, we learn turn-taking. We learn to share resources, to share our good fortune. So we learn a number of skills that are going to be important for the rest of our lives um, in our adolescent peer relationships. Adolescents receive advice and emotional support from each other. Adolescents will discuss issues with each other that they won't discuss with their parents or that they're much less likely to discuss with their parents. Over the course of adolescence, time spent with peers typically increases significantly and time spent with parents typically decreases significantly. School hours take up much of the week. After school activities, sports, social activities take up time in the afternoons, the evenings, and on weekends. Um, by late adolescence, individuals are typically spending two to four times as much time with their peers as with their parents. Peer influence um, does vary with cultural characteristics. Uh, most westernized countries uh, have the majority of their youth populations enrolled in school and school is typically organized by age group. There's, there's some um, exceptions. There'll be a few children who are accelerated. There'll be a few children who are held back. But there is a pretty narrow range of ages in um, any particular grade in elementary school, middle school, high school, even college, though there we, we see more of a spread. Margaret Mead um, has associated the extent of peer influence versus parental influence 
with the pace of technological change in cultures. And she describes three types of cultures, what are termed post-figurative cultures, in which change is very slow. And so elders teach the young the social skills, the technological skills that they need. In co-figurative cultures, there is faster change. Um, and old and young both have valuable mastery of skills not shared by the other age cohort. In prefigurative cultures, there's very rapid technological change, so that the knowledge of the parental generation is rapidly outdated and irrelevant, and the young may teach the older generation. Uh, a trivial example, I had to have my sons show me how to text, um, point out the universal power on icon on electronic devices, um, show me how to use the camera um, on each of my phones. I didn't recognize the commonality in design features. So uh, I rely on them for technological skill. And it's much more difficult now that they're one, there's one sometimes at home. Um, but not very frequently. Cross-cultural, cross-national um, studies of peer influence have particularly looked um, at the difference between peer influence and parental influence on consumer decisions. Um, now it's interesting that there's far more if you will, cross-cultural marketing research on peer influence than readily accessible, um, strictly psychological research on cross-cultural peer influence. But if you think about where the money is, it makes sense. Um, the general finding is that across cultures, individuals act in ways that they see as consistent with the reference group they identify with. And the reference group that adolescents around the world typically identify with is other adolescents around them. And this will particularly affect their brand choices for discretionary consumer goods. So where there is money to spend on things that are not necessities, a phone, um, nice clothes, nice shoes, a music system, teens are far more likely to be influenced by what their peers think is hot, what their peers think is the gotta have thing then they will by parental preferences. Um, there is some discussion in the literature, and this is um, reflected in our book, um, that basically argues that global youth culture for youth who have discretionary income is largely a reflection of American culture. 
Um, but if you just look at um, some national differences, I, I think you can see some of the counter-argument to that. Uh, but, but teens are heavily influenced by what the teens they identify with want and have. If your best friends have iPod Nanos, you need an iPod Nano. If your best friends have an um, iPhone 4S, you need one too. Um, if your best friend has a Mercedes that daddy gave her, well, your dad should do the same. The reference groups are going to vary, um, and the, the gotta have consumer items are going to vary culture to culture, but the dynamic of watching what your peers want, watching what your peers choose and get, and aspiring to the same thing appears to be nearly universal. So how does peer influence work? Um, the book distinguishes between normative social influence, that is, that there are stated and unstated rules for behavior, for appearance, for achievement, that members of a group are expected to adhere to, and social mechanisms criticism, mockery, compliments will be used to encourage conformity to those rules. There's typically um, some room for deviance from the rules, but not too much. Um, another type of influence is referred to as informational social influence, and this rests on adolescent insecurity that others know better than I do, know more than I do. This brings us back to social identity roles and reference groups. Reference groups, if they are local, um, if they're people we can see and touch and talk to, um, enforce their standards reference groups that are really aspirational groups that we know about, we read about, we see in the media, but we're not part of a social network that includes the idealized members of these reference groups. Um, they enact what their standards are. So reference groups serve as models for adolescents and to the extent that they are local, that they are real rather than aspirational, and they also serve as an audience for the team that gives approval, that gives criticism for appearance, for behavior, for accomplishment in the classroom, for accomplishment in the street. Peer influence tends to peak in middle adolescence, and along with the increase in peer group influence um, is typically a decline in parental influence. 
So parental influence declines um, by late adolescence, but so do many aspects of peer influence. Um, one of the things that happens in a typically developing adolescent um, with healthy psychological development is that behavioral autonomy and emotional autonomy significantly increase. Um, as one develops a sense of identity, who I am, what I value, what I prefer, what I aspire to, I compare my actual self, the things I do, what I look like, what I accomplish, with my internalized, personalized standards, rather than the standards that I see external to myself in a peer group. And I feel good or bad about myself in terms of how close I have come to my personally chosen standards and aspirations. Parents who are authoritarian typically have teens who are far more oriented toward the standards of peer group, toward peer group approval for what they do. So parents and peers um, may provide competing influences on teens or where teens have a reference group that's a positive reference group, um, the expectations of the peer group may be aligned in crucial respects with the expectations of the parents. Parents who are authoritative, parents who are typically warm in their interactions with their children, but who communicate clear standards, have adolescents who tend to be more pro-social in their choices of friends, in their choices of activities. Pro-social pro teens, teens who are interested in doing good things for other people, doing good things for themselves, tend to choose teens with similar values. Um, the graph on slide 10 is from the book and um, shows how peer influence tends to peak between 6th and ninth grade um, and then decline slightly. Uh, what's dramatically different here is that antisocial influence uh, peaks at, at ninth grade um, and declines in the later high school years, but it remains relatively high. Um, neutral and pro-social peer influence are stronger. Uh, but antisocial peer influence can be very, very significant, fortunately, uh, across a population sample. It affects relatively few teens, but antisocial peer influence can redirect a life trajectory when it coincides with pre-existing aggressive antisocial behavior 
um, in an individual child antisocial peer influence can have particularly um, long-lasting and devastating consequences. Most teens at some point in adolescence are going to get caught doing something that parents are disappointed with, perhaps that parents disapprove of considerably. And how parents respond to that problematic behavior um, typically leads to either an amplification of that negative behavior um, or a resolution of the difference. So where parents crack down harshly on what they see as problematic behavior, um, it's likely to exacerbate the behavior and lead the adolescents to focus more on the influence of their peers and less on the influence of their parents. So there is both the dynamic internal to the family of the positive feedback loop where positive isn't a good thing, that is, a parental negative response to negative behavior increases the negative behavior, um, and the parental reactivity pushes the teen further away from family influence. The extent to which peers influence teens around significant issues varies greatly with family characteristics. Um, and here I'd like to bring up a specific model of family functioning. Um, this is called the circumplex model. It's hinted at but not explicitly discussed in chapter 5 of our book. Um, the circumplex model of family systems suggests that marriages and family systems vary on three dimensions. A cohesion dimension that ranges from families that are enmeshed, in which case family members are over-involved, um, very demanding of constant interaction, constant shows of loyalty and love, and are highly reactive to each other. Um, they perceive slights, they perceive disappointments, they disagree, they comment on um, almost everything that a member of a dyad does um, to families that are disengaged, where there is little interaction, little affection, little loyalty, little mutual support. Um, obviously, neither of these extremes is a very good environment for children or adolescents to develop in. So families in the middle range of cohesion typically provide the healthiest environments. The second dimension is flexibility. And flexibility refers to the ways in which the family system responds to change. Uh, to a child becoming an adolescent and needing more independence, to a change in economic circumstances, to a change in health, to any of a variety of changes that 
would seemingly require new adaptation, new adjustment. In rigid families, people clamp down on rigidly defined roles, um, often involving which member of the family has the authority to set the rules, to um, exact or inflict punishment on those who violate the rules, um, to chaotic families in terms of flexibility in which no one is responsible for anything. Um, there is no organization, there is no predictability in how necessary tasks get accomplished or even whether necessary tasks get accomplished. And the third dimension is communication. Whether communication is uh, positive or communication is negative. In positive uh, communication families, there is reflective listening. People listen to each other um, and then confirm that they have understood what the speaker has said. They offer support and encouragement. Um, they ask questions of each other, but in a supportive way. Um, where communication patterns are negative, there's a great deal of criticism. There may be um, double-bind messages given. Um, there is harshness. There's a lack of love in the communication. So how does this stuff interact with adolescents? Um, peer influence is likely to be greatest for adolescents in disengaged families at the extremes of flexibility with negative communication patterns. Now the disengaged um, family mode of cohesion or lack of um, cohesion should sound somewhat like um, Baumrin's um, parenting style uh, typology. The disengaged parent is the parent who is not involved. Um, the disengaged parents aren't emotionally available aren't emotionally involved. In enmeshed families, both parents or one parent is constantly demanding extreme emotional closeness, extreme exhibitions of loyalty, and the members of family dyads, mother-daughter, mother-son, father-daughter, father-son, um, are overly involved, are interdependent, and are highly reactive. Typically, where there's an enmeshed family, you see one of two outcomes. The child who is caught in an enmeshed relationship never really develops behavioral autonomy, never really develops emotional autonomy. They can't make a decision based on what they want because they don't know what they want. They've never been allowed to have independent wants. The parental relationship has dictated what you should want, what you do want.
Um, so you, you have someone who is trapped in a childlike dependence on the relationship with the enmeshed parent for decision making and for feeling good or for feeling bad about oneself. And typically in enmeshed relationships, everybody feels bad most of the time. Um, the other alternative, and what can be the healthier alternative, is escape. The enmeshed child, as an adolescent, realizes this is not the way things should be, and they may realize that um, on their own because of effective reflective thinking about the family situation or input from peers, input from um, extended family members may bring them to that realization and to the behavioral autonomy that allows them to distance themselves from the relationship um, and focus on peer relationships, focus on relationships with adults that are healthier. Um, of course, it can also happen that an enmeshed child escapes the dysfunctional family system to enter into some other dysfunctional relationship. And I think this is a good place to stop and we'll pick up with sociometry um, or the measurement of peer status within groups. So. Next lecture will begin with slide 14.